There we go. All right. Well, good morning. All right, we're going to jump into it this morning. So two months ago, the calendar hit 2020. We started a brand new year, started a brand new decade. We as leadership in the church saw this as a great opportunity to pull back for just a few weeks and examine and look at, God, what are you calling us to be as a church? And specifically, we framed it under this kind of a question, which is, um, God, what is your plan? What is your purpose? And, and what is our place in that plan and purpose? Can that be known? Is that available to us? Or, or do we just go about doing this thing called church and, and being Christians just however we want? Well, here's what we've been considering the last three weeks. The answer is yes, God does make his plan and his purpose for his people known. And no, it's not something that we have to guess at. What we've come to see very clearly in the word of God is that here's God's plan and purpose. He created humanity to bring him glory, that you and I would live lives to make much of him. But because of our disobedience, sin entered into the world. And so we come under the penalty, the, the power and the presence of sin. And so humanity has been robbed because of our disobedience of being able to fulfill the very purpose for which we were created. We cannot have the meaning and the purpose in our lives, which is to make much of him. But God. But God entered into our world once again, sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, for the very specific purpose of dealing with the penalty, the power, and giving us the promise of dealing with the presence of sin once and for all. So Jesus Christ died for us in order that we would now be able to once again live for him. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So we believe that collectively as a church, and then individually as the people of God, that if we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our lives are not our own, praise God, but our lives are now once again back on track to make much of him because Jesus has delivered us from sin's power, from sin's penalty. And so, so what we've come to say as a church is, is we have a mission. Our mission, and hopefully by now you know it, is this. We exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. You can only have the life you were created to live in and through Jesus, a life that is to make much of him. And so because Jesus is the one who makes that possible, we look to follow him, we put all of our faith in him, and then, because we believe that that's God's desire for all of humanity, that we want to make others followers of Jesus Christ as well. So as a church, if you're, if you're here and you're visiting, you're like, what's Valley Center Community Church about? Like, like what, are, what are they doing here? Here's our vision. We want to see the lives of the people of Valley Center and beyond Valley Center transformed into followers of Jesus Christ. And, and that that would take place through not just the pastors, through the elders, through the deacons, but that takes place through all of us ministering together. Church, this is why we're here on this spinning globe. It's to live for him, to live not for ourselves. And as we do that, I'm here to tell you, you're going to find the greatest joy, the greatest peace in your life when you are fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. And, and so 
Instead of just leaving it right here, what we've done the last three weeks, I'm just going to summarize this. If you want to know more about these things, you can go back and listen to the other messages. But what we've said is like, what does this actually practically look like? How do we know if we are being faithful to our mission, i.e. being disciples of Jesus and making disciples of Jesus? And thus far, we've said it entails three things. The first of this is that we gather for corporate worship. We gather for corporate worship. We make it a priority to, unless sickness or the unexpected hits us, to gather with the saints weekly to make much of God. Our hearts need that, but also the people around us need that. Paul would say to the Romans that we gather, and as we do so, we encourage one another in our faith. And so we believe as a church that to be and make disciples means that we gather for corporate worship. Secondly, we believe that we are to grow spiritually in our knowledge and application of the word of God. We're supposed to grow spiritually in our knowledge and application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Philippian church, he said, listen, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have been saved And so now that you are saved, freed from the power and the penalty of sin, while the presence of sin still exists in the world, work out your salvation. Put on display who you actually are. And that doesn't come naturally. We have to grow in that, the Bible says. And so we want to be intentional about being disciples of Jesus Christ, knowing what it looks like to obey him and to walk as new creations. We gather for corporate worship. We are committed to growing spiritually. That's what the church should be engaged in. That's what you as an individual should be engaged in. And then lastly, what we saw last week, which you've heard Paul and Jason already refer to, is that we're to be a people who go, go into the world, sharing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only through Christ that people can be saved. God has called upon you and I to be messengers of reconciliation. In that great passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, after we're told that he died so we'd no longer live for ourselves, and in verse 17, how we're called to be new creations, Paul goes on to say this. God has given us, through Christ, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that through you and I going out, God is reconciling the world to himself. Listen, we are God's plan A. There is no plan what? B. People are saved by you and I going out and proclaiming the message of of the gospel. And so, just real quick, when I was going back over and reviewing some of the things I shared last week, I came across something. Listen, I've been, like, saved since I was born. Okay, not, not really, but I grew up in the church. I came to faith in Jesus Christ when I was five years old. I've read the scriptures. I've studied the scriptures. I've affirmed what I'm about to tell you. I've seen this in the past, but it really hit me in a powerful way, and I felt like I needed to share this with you. As we talk about going and being people who share the gospel, we know God calls us to do that. Like, it's a matter of obedience. God wants us to go and share the gospel. Not just like he wants it. Not like he's like, God, he's like, oh, please, would you go and tell somebody about Jesus? No, no. Like, he commands us to go. But did you also know that he commands you to be prepared to share the gospel? That it's actually a command of God. It's actually a matter of obedience or disobedience if you are equipped to share the gospel. And this is what really hit me. Like, that's not optional. You and I are actually commanded to be prepared to share the gospel. And just to show you that it's not me saying this, it's God's word. 1 Peter 3.15 says this. Look at this. This is powerful. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord 
as holy. That's in the imperative voice. That's a command. And here's how you do that. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and what? Respect. Let me just say this very simply. Being able to share the gospel clearly with someone is not simply a mark of being and making disciples. It is actually a matter of obedience. You follow me? So if you say, I love Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and he's my Savior. The next question I'm going to ask you is, are you prepared to share that message with somebody else? If you are not yet equipped to do it, it's not optional for you to be equipped. It's not optional for you to be prepared. God actually commands you to be prepared. If you're not prepared to do that today, God, not David Wojnicki, God says you're not walking in obedience. Did you know that that was in the Bible? (laughs) That's how serious God takes going and sharing. And so... Because we believe as leadership that God has called us to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to help the church walk in obedience. We want those of you who feel like, I'm not yet equipped, I'm not walking in obedience in this regard, we want to help you in this. Last year we offered a class called Evangelism 101. We had about 32% of the church actually went through that. That was exciting. We're going to be offering that class again here at the end of March, the beginning of April. We're picking out the dates because we want you to be equipped to share. We want you to be able to walk in obedience to what God's word says here. But, but it's not only this. Here's something else that we're passionate about. If, if Christ died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, and if people can only actually live the life they were called to in and through Jesus, and, and if we believe that God is the one who ultimately does the saving, we're just called to go out and share. One of the things that we want to invite you to do is today, in your bulletins, there's a little bookmark trying to see where mine went. I don't know. Somebody, somebody robbed me of mine. It was here, I promise. Oh, there. Nope, don't have it. Do you see that book? It's called Praying. There it is. Dean, hold yours up so people can see. I'm going to embarrass him. Yeah, there's the bookmark right there. He's going to be on the podcast now. Um, so that bookmark has 10 spaces where you can write the names of people in your spheres of influence that you can be praying for. Church, we want to be a church that's committed to gathering, growing, but also going, right? We want to be a church that is praying for the lost, sharing the gospel with the lost. You have friends, you have neighbors, you have family members that are actually in your sphere of influence. I would invite you to join with me. Be praying for those names. Take that bookmark, keep it. Pray for those names until they get saved and scratch that name off and put on somebody else, right? But this is what we want to be engaged in. But today we come to now the very last aspect of what we believe it looks like to be and make disciples. Something that we're really clear on. We exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. So we gather, we grow, we go. But now turn with me to Acts chapter 2 as we come to our last one this morning. Acts chapter 2. Why are we turning to Acts chapter 2? We used this passage a few weeks ago. Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts is just a great book because it shows us how the first followers of Jesus Christ understood their faith and understood what it meant to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. Because this is a record of the first followers of Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 2, one of Jesus' followers is going out with the gospel, Peter. Peter takes the command of Jesus to go, and he goes, and he shares the gospel with people in Jerusalem. And look at verse 41. After he shared the gospel... 
God reaped the harvest, it says 3,000 souls not just simply heard the gospel, but believed. On one day, 3,000 people got saved because one person, Peter, was faithful in proclaiming the gospel. And then right after those people get saved and become followers of Jesus, look at what they do, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Stop there. Verse 42 shows us that not only were the first followers of Jesus Christ faithful to going out with the gospel, but then what do they do? They gather for worship and they seek to grow. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. In these, just these two short verses, we see that the first followers of Jesus, they got it. They understood that to be a disciple of Jesus meant that you gather, it meant that you grow, it meant that you go out with the gospel. But it's in these next verses that we see the final aspect, starting in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, church, we've said that it appears those first disciples got the idea of gathering, growing, and going. But what else were they engaged in according to this text? What else were they actively doing? The very simple and straightforward answer was they were giving. These people were givers. As they looked to follow Christ, they gave. And look at what they gave. They gave of their time. They met together. That requires time. They served one another. So they gave of their time to serve. And then the more tangible one that we would all resonate with, it sells that they sold their property and they sold their possessions. And what did they do with the proceeds? They gave to all as any had need. They financially supported each other. Here's the deal. The picture that we have of these first disciples is that they were givers. And in case you're wondering Is that really what's being described here? It says that they were people who had, verse 46, generous hearts. Hearts of generosity. And what you're going to find when you read the Bible, one of the things that marks the people of God over and over and over again is that they are givers. Being a giver is what followers of Christ do. And so because we see it here, and as we're going to see it in just a moment, here's what we come to say as a church. Yes, to be and make disciples means we gather. Yes, it means that we grow spiritually. Yes, it means that we go. But to be a disciple of Jesus also means that we give. We give of our time. We give of our treasure. That's our financial resources. And we give of our talents. That's our abilities in service to God and his church. 
the way that those first followers of Christ lived in Acts, I'm here to tell you, is not to be an anomaly. It's not to be something that's extraordinary, but to be who the people of God are. The people of God are givers. Now, let me pause here, hit pause for a moment, because when a message like this gets to this point, some people are like, oh, here we go. It's a message on giving. And if you're visiting the church, you're like, is this one of those churches where they're like always using the Bible and talking about give, give, give? Is that what it's about? Listen, I know that there are some churches out there that use the pulpit and use the Bible always to be asking people for money. But here's what I get to say, and I say it with a smile on my face. Statistically, that's not true of us. Here's why. Here's the deal. I've been the pastor here in the lead role, meaning the primary preacher, for the last five years. I've been here 17 years, but five years as the primary preacher and teacher. In case you're worried that Valley Center Community Church is a church that's always talking about giving and using the Bible to tell people to give, here's the deal. In the last five years, I've preached 201 Sundays, okay? 201 messages on Sunday morning. Out of those 201 Sundays that I've preached, you know how many of them I, I've talked about Jesus in? Yeah, 201, all right? Don't, don't, you don't have to worry about that, okay? So 201. Now, do you know how many of those Sundays I've also talked about how God refers to our money and our generosity and how, how our Christianity is tied to that? Here's the deal. You know how many messages I've done? You can fact check me. All my messages are online. Four, okay? So, so we don't use the Bible to just simply come and thump on people to give. We preach it when it's in the text, or we preach about it when we feel like it's something important, like in a message today, to help us understand who, where to be. Okay, I, I feel better. Let's go on, all right? So here's the deal. God shows us in the book of Acts that his people, his first followers, were givers. Now we're going to talk about why. Why is it that giving is something that marks being a disciple of Jesus? There's two reasons, biblically, that I think the Bible presents over and over again. Are you ready? Here's the first one. We are givers because we know that what we have is not ours. Can I get an amen to that? Let me try it one more time. want a bigger amen to that. We know, we are givers because we know that what we have is not ours. Amen? Yeah, yeah, we amen that because it's true. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is yours and half is Jesus's. No, what does it say? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. According to this verse, how much of our world belongs to God? How much? All of it. It's all his. And so King David one of the most prosperous kings of Israel, he got this, and he wanted his people to get this. And so when they were preparing to build the temple, he wouldn't build it. His son would. He prays over the dedication of it, and here's what he says in First Chronicles 29. In fact, I want to give you a moment. Turn to First Chronicles. Here's how you find it. Go to the beginning of your Bible, and then start going to the left. When you get to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, you're not there. 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you're not there. Then you're going to come to 1 Chronicles. It's the last chapter of 1 Chronicles. I want you to see, this is going to be up on the screen, but, but I want you to see it because this is one of those great passages to turn to later and say, what was, was he really saying what's in the Bible? Here it is. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 11. We come and David, he, he prays 
and he's blessing the Lord. He says, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Do you think he believed that all life is to be lived to the glory of God? Yeah, this is a guy who understood what worship was. But then he says, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. But then he doesn't stop there. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own. Ready for this? We've given you. It's all yours. You gave it to us. We give it back to you. It was yours to begin with. Verse 16. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. How much of it belongs to God? It's it's all his. All of it. So, So do you hear what God's word is saying? This is foundational. This isn't... Somebody coming and making these things up, everything belongs to God. Anything you have is because God, listen to what I'm I'm saying, my words very carefully. Anything you have is because God put it in your care. While it's in your care, it still belongs to, guess what? Him. And while it's in your care, it is still to be used for his glory. Did you track with all that? It's all his. He puts it in your care. Even while you have it, it's still his, and it's still to be used to his glory. So here's where it's simple to to say, we are stewards. We are not owners. We are stewards. We're not owners. What you have is not yours. A steward is somebody who manages or is responsible for the property of someone else. There are two pernicious and evil and wicked lies that Satan has planted in this world as it pertains to our stuff. The first lie is this. What you have is actually yours. That's a lie from the lips of Satan to get you to think that what you have is actually yours. The second one is sneakier and even worse, that what you have is because you earned it. That what you have is because you worked for it. See, most of us might, might say, you know what? It does belong to God, but, but I can still use some of it the way that I really want because didn't I work for it? I mean, I put in the hours. I put in the effort. And because we do work hard and because we do accumulate, we start to think it's actually ours. I want to tell you, This is a lie. To think that just because you worked harder, smarter, or faster than somebody else gives you some degree of ownership of what you have is a lie. Did you get to choose to be born where you were born? The answer is no. Did you get to choose to have the health or lack thereof throughout your life that you had? 
Did you get to choose to have the mind that you have? How many of you were born with cerebral palsy? How many of you were born with mental defects? The only reason you don't have those things and the ability to have the mind you have is because God gave that to you. And so so to be so proud as to say that what I have is because of what I've done is an arrogant, egregious sin in the eyes of God. Because you didn't earn anything. Any health, any wealth, any abilities you have is because God gave you those things. Are you tracking with me? Because either this book is lying to us or it's telling us the truth, and we need to either adjust our mindset to this book, or we're going to keep walking in the lie. God knew that the people, his people, would even struggle with this, even though we'd want to acknowledge that we didn't really earn it or didn't work for it, but that it's all God's. To help his people with that in the Old Testament, he came to the people of God, and he said, when you come into the land that I'm giving you, Here's what I want you to do. All that you're going to receive in the land is because I'm giving it to you. And just to remind you that it's not yours, I want you to give a tithe. I want you to give every year 10% of what you bring in back to me. God did that for the people of Israel to help them combat these lies that they would be susceptible to believe. And so he came to them. He said, give a tenth. Now, some people can look at the tithe and they'd be like, wow, that was a lot of money, uh, a tenth. But think about what God is actually, think about what's happening here. God is coming and saying, listen, it's all mine. I mean, who wouldn't want this deal? If somebody came to you today and say, okay, I'm going to give you all of my wealth to manage and be responsible for. You can live off of 90% of it. I just want you to give me 10% every year. Who's not taking that deal, Right? I mean, you talk about politicians saying universal income, right? Like that's, you know, that idea. Like God's like, yeah, that's what I've done for you. And I'm just asking you to give a tenth back to me. He did that for the people of God to help their hearts. We are givers because we know that what we have is not ours, but belongs to him. And so in our giving, we are affirming this to be true. But this isn't the only reason why we're givers. When you go New Testament, right? When, when you come to the New Testament, Paul says, I'm going to up the whole thing. It's one thing to know that it all belongs to God anyway, but here's what Paul says. We are givers because we are recipients of grace. We're recipients of grace. Another way of saying this is that we are recipients of immeasurable blessings that we did not deserve or earn. And so Paul would make this point when he'd write to the Corinthian church. This is God's word here. He'd write to the Corinthian church. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is another good passage to flip over to. We were in Chronicles. Let's go to another C1. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. Why not? Here we go. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 7, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and he says something really interesting. He says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you... Paul's commending them. He's saying, listen, I'm seeing you live out a lot of what it means to grow in Christ and and to obey him. See that you excel in this act of grace also. He's saying there's like, "Mm, there's one thing that I want you to still demonstrate that you're not quite demonstrating. And he calls it an act of grace. 
Why does he call it an act of grace? Because it is an act which is driven by grace. Grace moves you to do this thing that Paul's about to talk about. Now, what is the thing that he's talking about? In the context, it's giving. Because in the verses right before this, he's told the Corinthians about the Macedonian church and how they have been gracious and generous in giving to the financial resources of the ministry of the gospel. And so he's coming to the Corinthians and he's saying, look at the Macedonians are doing this. They're giving. I'm calling you to give as, as well. And so he says in the very next verse, he says, I say this. I'm calling you to be givers, not as a command. Now, that's huge. You and I should hear this and be like, okay. So he's not, he's not commanding them to give. But here's the reason why he's not commanding them to give. He says, I shouldn't have to. But to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Now, at first blush, when you read this, it's hard to actually get fully what he's saying. But once I tell you what this is, it really forces you to freeze kind of where you're at and say, wow, do I take giving this seriously? Paul's just said, I want you to excel in the act of giving. It's motivated by grace. And I'm calling you to do this. I'm not commanding you. And I don't have to command you to do this because here's the deal. If you do not give, he is connecting giving to your love for God. John would say, we love because he first loves us. Anyone who's able to love God is because God has first loved them. And so, if you say that you love God and yet you are not giving, Paul is saying, you don't know God's love. Another way of saying it is, you better check and see if you're even saved. Because we love because he first loved us. If expressing our love is shown through our giving and you're not giving, then you might not actually have experienced the love of God in your life. And just to show that that's exactly what he's saying, look at the next verse. I don't have to command you in this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like this should be an obvious thing. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. At least I'm assuming you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became rich poor so that by his poverty you might become rich he's saying don't you know this like i don't have to command you to give because you should already recognize that jesus christ is the greatest giver of all and that you have received grace from him riches from him that you don't deserve and if he did that for you how can you not then in return be that kind of a giver christ dear church gave up everything to the point of death on the cross, Paul said to the Philippians, so that you might have the life you were created to have. And then he gave you all of his riches and inheritance in the heavenly places so that one day you and I would be forever with our God. How generous, how sacrificial has Christ been towards us? Paul is saying, that's your motivation to be a giver. Because if you know that generosity, if you know that sacrifice, you hold nothing back. 
We are givers because we know that everything that we have is not ours to begin with. And we are givers because we are recipients of God's grace. Why do we say as a church that to be and make disciples means that we give of our time, our talents, and our treasures in service to God and his church? It's because it's not ours and we're recipients of grace. And then to answer the question as to what is it that we are to give? I hope this is obvious at this point. Like when we say, so what is it that we give? The answer is everything about us. Everything. We hold nothing back. It's why Paul wrote to the Romans. Therefore, I urge you in view of the mercies of God to offer your bodies, your very lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. All of you, David Wojnicki, all of you, Valley Center Community Church, you hold nothing back from him. And so categorically, we say that the Bible talks about it in, in our time and our talents and our treasures. The way that the Bible talks about often to help us frame it is to say, like, when you think about your life, you have your time, you have the abilities and gifts God has given you, and you have your financial resources, and all of those things we give back to God, we give to him. Why? Because he has blessed us immeasurably, and it's all his to begin with. Nothing that I'm giving away was mine anyways. I always love that. When, when somebody gives you something, they're like, hey, would you give this away for free? You're like, absolutely. Like, that's fun. You give that away. He says, that's your mindset with your time, your treasure, and your talents. We thought long and hard as church leadership, like, well, what does this actually look like on a practical level? Because to say that we're about giving away everything, that we hold nothing back, sometimes it's actually hard to put that into practice in a really practical way. So let me give you just kind of three ways of thinking about your Christian life and what this looks like when, when we actually live this out. First, when it pertains to our time. What it looks like is organizing our time so that being and making disciples is, takes priority in our life. Like, when you say, okay, Dave, what does it look like to, to give of my time? Listen, do you look at the time, which is a finite resource, and say, is my time something to be used with however I want? To go according to my pleasures and passions? Or do I look at my time and say, when I'm using the time that I have, I'm conscious and aware that I'm to use it to make much of him. To be a follower of Jesus Christ and to make followers of Jesus Christ. It, it's why it's a no-brainer that we give just a few hours a week to gather for corporate worship because it's his time anyway. And I'm going to use it. I'm going to show my heart that I want to make much of him. When it comes to our talents, it's, it's using our talents to serve one another. Did you know that every person, I'm looking at you, every person here, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he says, you've been given a gift. Gifts to be used. This is like a whole other message. I can't get into it. But you have gifts. In fact, men in the church, this Saturday at our men's breakfast, um, Ken Slavin's doing the teaching, and we're going to be talking very specifically about the gifts that God has given us. And we're going to actually do an assessment of that. So if you want to know, like, God, how am I gifted? You need to know that and say, how am I then using that to serve the body, to serve my brothers and sisters? And then you talk about your treasure. Like, this one to me is probably one of the most obvious. It's using our treasure by giving regularly and generously and sacrificially to financially support the ministry and the needs of the church. This is what God calls us to. This is what it looks like. It's the money that I have, the resources that I have, 
do I use it for myself or do I use it and give it over to the Lord? Why do we give? It's not ours. It's all His. We are recipients of grace. We're, we're givers because our Savior's a giver. And what is it that we give? We give of our time, our treasure, and our talents. We, we hold nothing back. But, but now I want to close, and I asked Pastor Jason just to give me a little bit more time because I want us to close here by thinking about this. How much do we give, though? I said, what we give is everything, but, but like, really, Dave, like, how much practically, like, what does it mean to be a giver? Two principles that come right out of the Word of God. The first is this. Our giving, David watched Nikki's giving, my family's giving, your giving as a follower of Jesus Christ should reflect the sacrifice and generosity of Jesus Christ towards us. Can I get an amen to that? We already looked at that passage, right? But you know the grace. But you know the grace. You have been saved You've been spared the punishment of sin. You've been delivered from the power of sin. Our giving of our time, treasure, and talents should reflect, at minimum, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has done for us. Like, Old Testament, it's 10%, right? Old Testament, it's 10%. Let me ask the question. Today in Jesus Christ, have we experienced more blessing, more grace, more peace, more hope, today in Christ than the saints did in the Old Testament? Let me help you with it. The answer is yes. And and so are we looking and saying minimum or are we looking and saying no? We're evaluating our giving based on the generosity of Jesus. Second principle, our giving should display that we are not living for ourselves but for him. How we give of our time, our talent, our treasure should should display that you actually believe God's word when it says he died, that you should no longer live for yourself. Our giving should reflect the generosity and sacrifice of Jesus. Our giving should display that we understand that we do not live for ourselves, but for for him. You know me, I like illustrations, and when I find one that I think helps my brain I like to share it because that's what I do. I'm a sharer. I'm a giver because God calls me to give. <clears throat> and so taking these two principles, I, I brought with me, these are uh, magnetiles. Um, my youngest daughter uses these things, and uh, they're great. You can build stuff out of them. They're magnetiles, so they have magnets in them, and they, they stack well together. But I want you to look at these magnetiles. I want us to think here for a moment about what are these principles of, of our giving reflecting the sacrifice and generosity of Jesus and our giving reflecting that we live no longer for ourselves but for him. Like, what does it actually look like? This right here, I want to just apply this to our money, to our financial resources. It's like one of the easiest things to do. And the Bible does, so we're going to. Most people, we look at what we have, our financial resources, and we say, okay, so, so here's David Wojnicki's. Now, if you don't know God and you don't know Jesus Christ, you look at this and you say, it's all mine, right? And so I take it and I, and I spend on my, on my house and then I spend on my utilities and then I spend on my car payments and, and then I come and I'm like, okay, I got to pay for my, for my food and then I come and I say, I got to pay my utilities and then there's my activities for my kids and then I want to put some in my savings and then my 401k and then I want to say, 
oh, I want to go on vacation, and, and then, oh, I got my hobbies, and so I'm going to spend. So we take all of our stuff because we believe it's ours, and we move it from this pile, right, where we start, and we spend it all on us. Now, the believer in Jesus Christ comes, and they say, okay, here's my financial resources. Now, because I know it's, it's kind of, it's really all God's to begin with, um, I, I acknowledge that, but most Christians have this perspective when it pertains to their stuff. They say, I, I got to live, right? I got to have a roof over my head. So again, I come and I, that's what I spend on my house. And there's utilities at my house that I got to take care of. And so I, I spend on those things and I got to get to work. And so I spend on my car and then, you know, one day I'm going to retire. So I got to, got to save some there and, and then, oh, geez, you know, I got to eat. Oh, wait, I have teenage boys. Okay, I got to save some more there. I got to spend more. And then, well, we like to going out to eat. You know, that's a nice thing to do. And this year we had that vacation that was planned. And so we want to take that vacation. Oh, geez, the cell phone and the internet. Can't, can't forget, can't forget those, those things. And then, oh, my goodness, we had that medical emergency thing. So I got to pay, pay for that. And then, you know, I like my Starbucks every day. So I got to get a little Starbucks in there. You know, I'm going to do that. And then it's like... Oh, oh, you know what? Okay, okay. So here you go, God. Because I, I had to take care of all my stuff first, right? I got to live. And then, and so most Christians' mindset is then it's like, okay, so I got, so whatever's left after I take care of what I really need, God, you get this. Here's the principle. He died for all that those who live would no longer live for themselves. So one of the principles that we're talking about is, does my giving reflect that I actually understand that it's all his and to be used for his glory? And so I look at it and I say, so here's how much God has given to me to care for, but it's not mine. And I'm just going to tell you what I believe the biblical proportion is because I don't think it ultimately just up and vanishes. But I'll tell you what most of hearts need. When God comes and says, I want you to give me 10%, I think that we still need that in our hearts and minds. And so when we look at our stuff, we don't come and we say, okay, it's all mine to do however I want, and God's going to get the leftovers. If I really believe it's all his, and it's to be used for his glory, then right off the top, to help my heart, I'm setting aside 10%. Now, is that going to change how I can live with the rest? Absolutely. But it's because our hearts need this. We need to recognize it's all his. And then after I do that, then I'm going to come and I'm going to say, it's still all yours. And so as I give this to you and as I start using these things for the things in my life that that need in order to survive, at the end of the day, I'm still thinking, am I making any sacrifices in any of these other areas so that I can give more to him? Or am I just saying, you know what, I just, I gave minimum good, and so now I'm just going to keep living for myself. We need as the people of God to continually remember the grace that has been shown, the truth that it all belongs to him because it's all his. It's all his to be used for his glory. And our mindset with our stuff should be, I'm going to start every month, every year, being intentional about my finances and establishing in my heart what I believe I need to give to him. And it better be generous and it better be sacrificial and it better display that I'm not living for myself but for him because that's the model of Jesus. 
And some people, they wonder, it's like, well, what does generous and sacrificial look like? This really hit me this week. We have a vast disparity of wealth at Valley Center Community Church. Let me explain what I mean by that. We live in a community where we have people that make hundreds of thousands of dollars, and we have people that are literally on Social Security. And so let me paint a picture for you. Somebody who is living off of $40,000 a year, if they come and they give 10% of, of what they have, they're now living off of $36,000. That could be not only generous, but sacrificial for them to do that because of where we live. Somebody who's making $100,000 a year, if they give over 10% of what they have to the Lord, they're still living off of $90,000. So what generous and sacrificial looks like to that person could look vastly different to somebody else. Are you tracking with me on that? Like, I'm not a mathematician, but, but I know that when it says each one should establish in their heart what they should give, this is the principle. And now I share this with us as a church to, to say this. Like, we see opportunity for us to grow continually as a church because even with these things being true of us, in the last year, in 2019, 78% of the people who came to Valley Center Community Church regularly um, gave something to the general fund of the church, 78%. That's from $5 to tens of thousands of dollars. 78% gave, gave something. That means that 22% of people that regularly attend this church didn't give anything to, to the Lord. And, and those 78% gave anywhere from five to, to tens of thousands. Now, I know somebody who came to me and all they could literally give last year was $5 because of their medical situation and their inability to work and all of that, but they still gave something, $5. And so when we as the leadership, we look at this, we say we have opportunity to grow. Number one, we celebrate the people who did give. We say, thank you, Lord, that some people have given. But it still begs two questions. To the 22% of the people who attended the church and claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ but didn't give anything, the question is, why didn't I do that? What does that say about my heart and my understanding of my stuff? Now, maybe, maybe all 22% were in such financial crisis that they couldn't give even $5. Maybe that's a potential. But I think we got to own that, and we just got to at least make that known. Then for the 78% of us, like my family who gave something, here's the question that still needs to be asked of us. Praise God that we gave, but did my giving genuinely reflect that I believe it's all his to begin with? And did my giving genuinely reflect sacrifice and generosity? It's not about just simply 10%. I'm telling you, this is, I, I just think for my family, that's always been the minimum ever since Hannah and I got married. Like, that's just what we did. I believe God says, great, good, Dave, wonderful, but what does generous and sacrificial look like for you? church, I come and I share these things because I'm not looking to shame. I'm not looking to condemn. I'm looking to teach and to equip and to present to us, here's the life that God in and through Jesus Christ wants for us. Because if we're going to exist to glorify him by making and being disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Church, our commitment is to gather. Our commitment is to grow spiritually. Our commitment is to go. And our commitment is to give of our time, of our treasure, and our talents because we're walking in the life that Jesus Christ purchased for us with his most precious blood. May he help us be that kind of a church and that kind of a people in 2020 and beyond. Let's pray together. Lord, we consider your your word. We hear from you. And now, Lord, we ask for your help. Help us to hear and to receive and to take into our lives, Lord, what it is that each of us needs individually so that we might live in obedience in response to the grace and the new life which has been purchased for us in and through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I am excited because of what you promised for your people when we walk in obedience to you. Lord, what we will see as your glory is made known in this valley and in the lives of your people. And so we look to you and we praise you and we say all this through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.